is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our own Alex Cortez brings us the next edition of our Rule of Law series. August 2001, military historian Victor Davis Hansen publishes his latest book, and not too long after has a book talk long scheduled for September 15th, 2001. I want to welcome you all to Fig Garden Bookstore as we welcome Victor Davis Hansen. His latest book, Carnage and Culture, Landmark Battles in the Rise of Western Power, Fig Garden Bookstore and Fresno welcomes Victor Davis Hansen. In the past, if I've done this, I had given the synopsis of the book for 30 minutes. I don't think that's appropriate given the situation that we've had. There's been some sort of explosion at the World Trade Center in New York City. The plane may have hit one of the two towers of the World Trade Center. As fire crews are descending on this area, it, it does not appear that there's any kind of a, an effort up there yet. Now remember, oh my God. Oh my God. That looks like a second plane has just hit. The Pentagon itself has caved in from the top. There is much fire uh, coming out of the windows. Uh, it looks like uh, something from World War II, Peter. The second building that was hit by the plane has just completely collapsed. The landscape of New York City has just been changed. So what I would like to suggest is this particular book, which came out three weeks ago, relates to the current crisis, because I think it does. And even though the book barely mentions the rule of law... In fact, it explicitly mentions it only twice. It's silently there throughout all of it, as it is in our daily lives. By the 19th century, 85% of the world's surface was controlled by European forces. Now, this is something that most of us in the mainstream academic business either try to deny or apologize for and I didn't want to write a book trying to talk about the justice or injustice of Western culture right we simply wanted to explain why it was so why do Europeans today and Americans project power that's not commiserate with a rather small population and territory why is it that China steals secrets from us and we don't steal them from China so I wrote this book to try to identify characteristics of Western culture that when applied to the battlefield over 2,500 years have given the Europeans and their culture power that was not commiserate with its population. What is this culture? Freedom, of course. The Battle of Salamis, the Greeks were extremely outnumbered, and yet they killed over 60,000 Persians. A non-Western culture, what we know today as Iran. They lost almost no one. Why? Well, for a variety of other reasons, technology, of course, but the Greeks believed it was freedom. Aristotle has an interesting discussion about what free people can do, and that's going to be tested in the next year or two. We're told that fanaticism is a great advantage in war, but history tells us the opposite, that free people who willingly take up arms, slow to wrath, actually last the distance. That free people living equally by the rule of law rather than living unequally under the whims of a dictator have a reason to fight. They have something to fight for. 
their freedom and their equality under the law and ownership of property. They'll fight to protect all of this with a ferocity and focus that someone who doesn't couldn't. A free people are slow to wrath, Victor said. They as a society have to decide to fight in America. Our representatives have to pass a law declaring war. But in dictatorships, the dictator decides for you. It's their decision alone and not ours that we're fighting for. After the Battle of Midway, we were told that the United States could not fight Japan because we only had three carriers. By 1944, we had over 70, and Japan had less than when they started with. Another, of course, is technology. It's not an accident that people steal arms from the West. It's not an accident that gunpowder, while it had been invented in China, was among the mandarins, was not used in a practical way. Only in the West did people try to write treatises on it, fabricate it, compete with each other, and flood the world with firearms. The Battle of Lepanto, for example, a single Western state, Venice, with a population of less than 200,000 people, could create more galleys. The ships of war in that era. In a single year than the Ottomans could, who had a population of 35 million and perhaps 1 million square miles of territory. Why? Because we in the West have this strange, amoral tradition of divorcing knowledge from religion. We in the West approach economics amorally, that we let the market decide. We don't have impediments based on what God says is right or wrong. In some countries, as we see in the Taliban and Iran do today, our rule of law guarantees the rights of creators to do what they do. And without the rule of law, they don't have that guarantee. We welcome progress, even though progress is quite destructive to custom and tradition. And yet, the Islamic world has always had a problem with open research. If you look at military manuals of the 15th and 16th century, or lighthouse construction in Constantinople, there were brilliant, isolated Arab mathematicians, military engineers, and every time they wrote a treatise, they had to worry about their right flank as an Islamic fundamentalist said they were rivaling the power of Allah, or they were thinking they were too good. And so research, because humans are brilliant all over the world, it's, I don't, I'm not a believer in genetics by any means, but I think that the brilliance in the Arab world has never had the possibility to flourish because if you were a great novelist, engineer, scientist, there was a greater propensity for religious fundamentalism. And you see that in the university system today in the world. It's no accident that people in the Islamic world, when they want to study science or they want to study literature, they so often will go to Cambridge or the Sorbonne or Harvard or Stanford or Yale. They don't have that same infrastructure in the Islamic world because there's some structural impediments to it. Again, we're talking about something historically, and I, what I, one of the sad things in American culture is that we have a lot of people awash in moral relativism who says you can't make any distinction. Every religion is identical. Every culture is identical. You're not even allowed to say that. A culture with the rule of law is better than one without it. I think if you want to look for a strong family culture, Islam is superior to the West, and that's admirable. But if you want to be a dynamic society, it's not the way to do it. We have a strange culture of self-loathing. There was a news report that Harvard University accepted money for scholarships and Middle Eastern studies from the Bin Laden family. 
But I thought to myself, how odd that Harvard University would accept money from a person's family who may have been under suspicion for years of terrorism, and Yale University would reject money for the promotion of Western culture. Another tradition is this weird idea of Western discipline. Everywhere else in the world, and Aristotle tells us this in politics, people reward soldiers for killing people. In the West, discipline is defined by marching in rank, keeping in time, drill, keeping your position, advancing on orders, and retreating. A good example, and one that I discuss at length in the book, is the Zulu War of 1879. The Zulus are the largest ethnic group in southern Africa. Less than 100 active, able-bodied British soldiers held off over 4,000 Zulus. And when the, the carnage was over, they lost less than 20, and they killed 400 and wounded as many. It wasn't because the Zulus didn't have weapons. They had been importing weapons for 60 years. But they had a different idea of how to use firearms, individually, without training, without control, without volleys. British redcoats fired, kneeled, fired, kneeled, and were able to have a, a, a discipline that goes all the way back in a continuous tradition to the Greek phalanx. So we in the West, and I think you'll see that again in the next, we talk about fanaticism and these cells as being disciplined. They will not have the discipline of the 101st Airborne, believe me. I don't say that with any sense of chauvinism at all. It's just a historical fact. The rule of law cultivates a society of discipline. It's not the forced and fake discipline of a ruler, but the real one from belief that we should be disciplined in abiding by the laws that we create. The Arab Muslimic world has been at war with the West in some fashion for a, over a millennium. And it's time that we Americans realize that there's people in the world that hate us, not for something our elites tell us that we've done, but for who we are. If I lived in a medieval world that didn't want women to vote, and I didn't want technology to disrupt family structure, then I would hate some place like America, where women bear their navels, and men dye their hair, people talk back to their parents, there's pornography. I would hate that world, even as I was fascinated with it. And that dichotomy of self-fascination and desire coupled with guilt is what plagues the Arab world. Islamic fundamentalism cannot reconcile the fact that people like to use cell phones and charge their tickets on the way to murdering people with frequent flyer miles and American Express cards, and yet they know that their own culture cannot create those things that they want. We've had a lot in the media about uh, attacking Muslims, but that's been very, very isolated. We a very tolerant society. I would much rather be a Muslim in the United States today than I would an American in Pakistan in three weeks. And there you have it, Victor Davis Hanson, just a touch and a taste of this great writer's mind. Our Rule of Law series continues here on Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our newsletter, and we'll get you our five best stories every week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.